I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we have an interview for you with Lisa Cross-Smith, the author of Whiskey and Ribbons, which is out now from Hub City Press. Hi, Kendra. Hello, Autumn. I am so excited for this interview. Right? I mean, it was such a fantastic book, and I say this every time, and I'm not going to apologize for it, but it was one of those books where you... (laughs) You disrupted my TBR, and I'm so glad you did, because this is... You are so welcome. Oh, man, it's not (laughs) the type of book I think I would have... I probably would have picked it up eventually on my own, but I don't think it would have made it to the top as quickly, but boy, oh boy, I love this book. And I listened to the audio, and... there's three different perspectives and each has their own narrator and each one is just so stellar and I was like Autumn this audiobook go go forth please just (laughs) yes this is true so we do say that every time but I feel like when it's not planned because even though we do that a lot it's like okay this is like a schedule that we sometimes work from this one was spontaneous and beautiful and just you know, I think we both cried with this book. Yeah, it's def- it's a tearjerker, but it's a happy book. Like, it's sad, but it's happy. It's like watching a good love story. Yeah. Like, it makes you feel all the feelings. Only it lasts several hours instead of just, like, two hours. <laughs> right? Anyway, enough about that. So we had a delightful time talking to Lisa. So without further ado, here is our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. We're so excited to have you on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We really enjoyed reading your book, and it was just such a fun read. Like, it was one of those books where I just felt happy when I finished it, or like glowy, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, well, I can't ask for much more, right? (laughs) Thank you so much. Most books, I feel like, start out this way for us is that one of us reads them and then we shove it into the other one's hands and so Mm -hmm, I finished mm -hmm. it and I was like Autumn like you just need to trust me just take this book go read it enjoy the book (laughs) 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 and we'll come back and we'll we'll talk about it but before we get too far ahead of ourselves uh, for our listeners who haven't read Whiskey and Ribbons yet uh, could you tell them a little bit about it? Of course yeah the story is about Eamon a police officer who shot and killed in the line of duty in the summer. His wife, Evangeline, is nine months pregnant. And so then I fast forward to six months later when Evie asks Eamon's adopted brother Dalton to move in and to help her take care of baby Noah. And soon after the story begins, we find out he's killed on the first page. And then soon after the story begins, Evangeline and Dalton kiss. They're snowed in, the baby's gone, the baby's with her parents, and Evangeline um, kisses Dalton. And so that's where we start and there is a whole lot that spirals out from there. And it's written in, from uh, three different characters, all three different characters' points of view. So we have Eamon and Evangeline and Dalton. And we go back and get to know Eamon before he's killed. And then we get to know Dalton before um, Eamon's killed as well. And then we get in to, to be with Evangeline while she's snowed in with Dalton. And all the emotions and all the grief and all of everything that's happening to both of them at the same time. In same and different ways. Wow, that's that's just a lot to take in. Like when you first hear about <laughs> it, it, isn't it? Re- <laughs> it's a lot to remember. I mean, I've been doing this for a while now, but yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot there. 
What was your inspiration for the story? Um, I really initially set out to write a story a very long time ago. And I mean, um, you know, 2000, 2001, I had an idea. I just wanted to write a story about a woman in love with two men. And so it, you know, obviously changed a whole lot from that initial spark that, that interested me. But, um, yeah, we, we did have a police officer who was shot and killed here. It doesn't happen that much, but in Louisville, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and it happened And when my daughter was really small. So my daughter was maybe just a, a year old then, and I never felt more vulnerable than I than I had when, when I was pregnant and when my daughter was so little. I'm a fairly independent woman. I can handle things. I can take care of most things on my own. But I remember feeling so vulnerable when I was pregnant and when I was so huge, nine months pregnant, I literally needed my husband to help push me over to get out of bed. And so I would, I would be like, you know, I, I was just thinking about how, what, is a more vulnerable situation to be in than to be nine months pregnant to lose your husband like that. I just couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about the way our city was also grieving for um, the police officer who was shot and killed in a random act of violence. And so that was kind of, I had a couple different sparks along the way and worked on it for a really long time, but that's kind of where it started from. That's such a beautiful place to start from. And a couple of things really drew me to your book because one is that my brother was born in Louisville. Mm. My dad's from Eastern Kentucky. There was a, you know, it's set in a place where I have family heritage. And also that you're published with Hub City Writers, which is just north of me. And it was so exciting to see a local indie press and have a book there and uh, to connect with. So how did you find out about Hub City Writers and how did you get Whiskey and Ribbons published with them? Yeah, it was really, really a dream come true to be published by a press that loves, publishes, and is, you know, so, so in love with the South. So I would say that they just love the South. They love Southern fiction. That's what they're doing. Like, they're not at all trying to get around that. They're not trying to do that in a sneaky way. Like, they're very straightforward. Like, we are publishing Southern fiction. We are looking for Southern fiction. And since I love the, the, the I mean, I just love the South. My family's from Alabama. We're from Kentucky. And so, um, so that was really important to me that, that I could connect with a publisher that, that was interested in Southern fiction, but not interested in the grotesque or not interested in just using the South as a joke, which is um, so often done. Yeah. I I actually don't know. I, I think the connection there was a writer friend of mine that I've connected with online, I think had posted one of my short stories, Meg Reed, who is now the director of Hub City. She was not at the time, but she soon, soon after bought my book. It was, and she became the director. Yeah. I think that she read one of my short stories. I believe that she reached out to both me and my agent around the same time. And it, it kind of went pretty quickly from there, but, um, it was definitely because Meg had read my shorter work. I do believe. Well, I think you're speaking autumn's love language as yes. <laughs> I, I do love Southern fiction and I'm glad you mentioned that about you know, using the South or the hub city, not using the South as like a joke or only interested in the grotesque, because that was one of the things that struck me about your book when I was reading it was, oh, these are normal Southern people <laughs> who aren't like some sort of weird stereotype or strange representation of the South. So I really appreciated that and loved, just loved reading the story. 
because of that. Thank you so much. I mean, someone actually said to me, I never really thought about black people living in, living in Kentucky. You know, <laughs> like that's just wild. It's wild to me, you know, because of course I've lived here my whole life, but it's wild to me that some people, yeah, when you say Kentucky, they just see one thing. If you say Tennessee, they just picture one thing or Mississippi or, you know, any of those states, they just are picturing one thing. It's really kind of hard for them to picture, oh, people are just living there, hanging out. We got Target, Starbucks. <laughs> I don't think that they see it like that. So it's pretty, it, it is pretty wild to have to sort of start there when I talk to people. Like I'm from Kentucky and we have water and it tastes really good. And, <laughs> and to have to start there is just, it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Tennessee. So I get a lot of that. Like, oh, you have all your teeth. And I'm like, yeah. I'm yeah. Yep, there's a joke for everything. Tennessee is one of the most beautiful places in the entire world, period. You know. I love it. But yeah. Okay, I will digress. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons why we found your book. And we actually originally met at the Decatur Book Festival. Autumn and I went down there and it's a beautiful festival near Atlanta. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. We are thrilled Anytime. to attend and you were on a wonderful panel um about it was like passion in love stories or something in fiction yeah. with Jamie Quattro. And who was the other author on the panel? Um, Catherine Schweel. Catherine Schweely. I'm not exactly sure how to say her last name, but she um, has written a Hub City book called What Luck This Life. Yeah. So they really are on fire, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're tearing up. <laughs> uh, one of the questions I asked at the panel was about Evangeline, because she's a woman of faith. And religion is mentioned throughout the story, but just as part of everyday life. It's not a crisis of faith novel. It's not a losing my religion type of novel. It's just part of Evangeline, who she is. But one of the things that struck me was that Evangeline is such a strong woman of faith and she's portrayed in such a complex way. She's not a caricature or a negative stereotype. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how you came to write Evangeline like that and why it's important to have complex women of faith portrayed in literature. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important. Um, I, I could say a lot of things about growing up and never seeing someone like me portrayed in any of the books I read. Um, most often when, um, you know, when I was growing up, um, not even most often, literally all the time, every black girl was a slave or very busy during the civil rights movement. She was struggling in some way. Um, I think it was until Jesse and babysitters club that I was like, Oh, there's a black girl and she's just a babysitter and going to high school and has crushes and, you know, knows how to ride a bike and all these really normal things <laughs> that white people get all the time. They get stories like this all the time. It's just a story about a white kid and a dog. But, but for, for black children, the story is always about struggle in some way. And so I will also add the same thing when I'm talking about um, women of faith or, or people of faith. Yeah, so often it's always just has to be the root of the story, and it's always usually negative. You know, there's either just a little old lady who, who prays all the time, and that's all she has going on, or you have someone who was raised in the church, and now they hate it, and now they're, you know, just against that in some way. You know, a lot of times I know it makes 
everyone's lives a little bit easier when they can easily put people into boxes and say, um, well, this person's a Christian, so it must mean this, or this person's a non-believer, it must mean this. Um, and that's always interesting to me because I'm a non-believer in a lot of things. I'm a non-believer of every other religion except Christianity. I mean, that's what someone could say about me. <laughs> I mean, so someone could call me a non-believer and their religion, if it's not Christian, then th- that's true. And a lot of people want to maybe think that Christian means Republican or a Christian woman in the South has to act this way. A white woman in the South has to act this way. A black Christian woman in the South has to act this way. And I found that it's kind of confusing. So playing off what we were saying earlier about the South in general, it's the same thing with, with Christianity. It's kind of confusing if, if the person doesn't fit into that box. And so with Evangeline, it just, she was, that part was easy for me. Like she is a Christian and she also is having this completely normal life. She's grieving. She's, she falls in love with the man. She, you know, is going out for margaritas with her ballet girlfriends, like all these really normal things. It's, you know, it's a part of her life. Yes. It's a very important part of her life, but there are other aspects to her life too. So, uh, you know, so rarely do I get to read that. I always try to write that. I'm usually, you know, I write a lot of Christian characters that are just living their normal life. They're very flawed, confused people because it's hard to be a human Christian or not. And so, um, it's important for me to, to write that so that I can read it. (laughs) And so also, so that other people who feel the same way I do or feel the same way Evangeline does can see that too. And this is something I loved about Whiskey and Ribbons because I love reading about religion in fiction, but oftentimes I feel like I'm being hit in the face with a baseball bat with preaching or anti-preaching or of some sort of thing, and they're not actually portraying people who practice faith of, of honestly whatever kind as just real people um, right right it's one of the reasons why i love the new ms marvels because she's a muslim girl and she wears a muslim swimming costume as her superhero costume and she goes mm-hmm. and saves the day and that's just part of who she is and right i i really hope that more books like yours come out and just portray people of faith of whatever kind just as people you know living their lives and and how that's just a beautiful thing of being human I mean, I, I, I totally agree. A, a, a lot of people are looking for more there along those lines. Like, I think a lot of people will come to it and expect to be preached to. Or, you know, Evangeline, I, I mentioned that Evangeline was a virgin. And, 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 and several people have been really taken aback. Like, oh, oh, what am I trying to say by saying she's a virgin? I'm like, just saying that she hadn't met anyone she had wanted to have sex with yet. It, it, like, you know, I'm not saying this huge thing. It's just like she's a virgin the way another girl in the book isn't. I'm not making a judgment call on that. My, the novel I wrote before this was about a woman who made every sexual quote unquote mistake someone can make. And the book is about her, her story and how beautiful she is and how loved she is. And, and, and I love to write that. Like she's kind of my wild girl and I love her. She's one of my favorite characters, but it's very, it's very interesting because I think a lot of times people are looking for something and they're looking a little to, you know, when I'm having Evangeline praying, I'm not saying to the reader this or that. I'm saying that's how she's dealing with the grief. Um, mm-hmm. That's how she's dealing with being brought to her knees in this way. And and, and then also she she's talking about sex. She's talking about lust. She's she, she's super jealous. She's she can have nasty thoughts too because a Christian is just as complicated and 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 messed up <laughs> as someone who's not. And in my case, even more so. I know that I'm in need of a savior. So someone might be like, I'm I'm cool. I'm fine with the way I am. I'm like I'm not cool with the way I am. Like. I'm 
I know I need Jesus like all day, every day, or I would be even more of a mess than I am. So like you're saying, I think a lot of people are so used to that. They're so used to getting preached to or something like that. They kind of will have their guard up sometimes. But, you know, I'm a very relaxed writer and the readers who want to come to me and read that's cool. And the others that drift away and it doesn't interest them, that's all right, man. It's cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's really fantastic. And I think you can't please everybody. You really can't. We talked a little bit a minute ago about how whiskey and ribbons is, it's about a lot of different things. And, but one of the things it is is at its heart is it's a love story too. And so kind of like in the same thread of things we've already been talking about, like, I personally have a very, honestly, a very a stereotype towards romance novels. I expect them to be certain things that are often not that great. But it's so nice to like have a love story that's just a love story, and it was beautiful and touching. And I may or may not have like cried a little bit at certain parts. <laughs> no. And so it's like, why do you think it is that like love stories have such a bad rap? You know, I would say first that. Maybe because or probably because a lot of them focus on women and women's emotions. And so often anything having to do with women um, is written off as fluffy or trivial or generic. The same way they talk about teenage girls and, and anything teenage girls are into is silly. They're overly excitable or, or, or something like that. Um, and also maybe a lot of times because so often they do have happy endings or, you know, because people do want happy endings. Uh, but, um, I enjoyed that, especially for the escape. I watched this documentary on romance novels and they were talking about how romance novels keep the lights on in the publishing industry. And that's what I think is so fascinating because everybody hates them and thinks they're so generic and cheesy, but somehow they're the best. <laughs> Selling book. And I think that's what shocked everyone, especially even though I wouldn't even say Fifty Shades is like a romance. I have not read those books, but but so I may be saying this wrong, but I'm saying maybe that maybe that's why everyone was just so shocked that that book did so well. And books like that, you know, books like Twilight or books when people are like, oh, it's kind of trite or whatever. But I'm, I think I think that what people are looking for is a love story, you know, and rom coms. And people really love those things. I mean, I know I do, especially mm-hmm. when the world is the way it is. Like I love to escape into you've got mail like this week everything's so crazy i'm like i can watch you've got mail like (laughs) the world is like out of control but i can watch you know meg ryan and tom hanks and everything is fine and (laughs) yeah you know and and especially you know my agent and i would talked about whiskey and ribbons and we would joke that it was literary romance which is something Mm. that doesn't exist (laughs) because people expect literary fiction oh it has to have a sad and it has to be dark and you have to be kind of confused when it ends and not know what happens (laughs) And it's like, oh, romance is like, oh, it's so cheesy. It's not beautifully written. You know, it's not winning awards. Like it's not, there's nothing interesting going on there. But I think that you're, you know, I I think that when people are looking at things that way that they really are missing out. I'm also just a natural lover. I'm just love everything. Like I'm just not a natural hater. And what I mean is like, when I see something, i probably love it. Like, I'll be like, oh, that's cute. Like, I'm just that kind of person. And so I think you, you know, maybe 50% of people are like that, or maybe 25% of people like that. But, but I think that that has something to do with it too. Like a lot of people want to hate on something that's happy or hate on something that's sweet. And there are a lot of cheesy things about romance. Now the covers, like some of them really are cheesy and stuff. I mean, I get it. I get it. But I also think that obviously really beautiful love stories are important and timeless and transcends gender and race and 
And all those things too. I am okay with fighting the good fight on that. <laughs> I can't like I'm not interested in writing stories that don't have a love story at the heart of them. Like I don't even know if I ever have or ever could or, or ever will actually. It's really important to me. So I'm okay with being the that sort of writer. <laughs> I think this is really, really beautiful. And I think that we've seen, quote, quote, genre fiction really grow over the course of history. I mean, historical fiction used to be considered, quote, unquote, trashy. And now, you know, Hilary Mantel is cleaning it up, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they recently had like a graphic novel and a mystery novel on the Man Booker long list. So I think that it really is just people coming to terms that these are just as legitimate stories as any other stories. And they're just part of being human. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would look at something like Outlander that blends those two things beautifully. It's historical Mm -hmm. fiction, but, you know, people are just reading it because they want to know what happens with Jamie and Claire. So it's like, you know, because people were like, oh, oh, people are just reading this for the sex scenes or whatever. I'm like, if you think I'm reading a 1,500 page book about, like, all the Scottish history, like, just, you know, because they have sex once, like, are you kidding me? Like, it's just because it's blending, like, two things so beautifully like that. And I just like to read good books too. I'm not all hung up on like genre. Like I'm not like that. I don't even really pay attention to that. I want to read a good book. I don't care, uh, you know, about that sort of thing. And I'm not like, you know, quote unquote snobby about, about that kind of stuff. Like I said, I really liked Twilight. You know, I really liked Twilight. I was like, Oh, that was cute. I can also read James Baldwin and it's okay. Like, it's just like, I'm just Relax. I understand people who get really upset about those things and really intense, but that's just not my personality. So I'm like, it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) I know I keep saying that, but it's true. That's how I work. That's that's what I'm doing like all the time. Yeah. People can be very precious about words on a page. Oh, sure. (laughs) So changing gears a little bit, uh, you mentioned that this story is told from three perspectives, Amon's, Evangeline's, and Dalton's and that they're all very unique points of view, and they have very different voices. And I was listening to the audiobook, and each one has their own narrator, and I feel like that definitely emphasized how they even use different language and different words to describe things. And oftentimes, they describe the same event, but in a different way. How did you go about writing these different perspectives? And you did, did you find keeping them distinct uh, difficult? Yeah, um... I'll start by saying that I absolutely love the audiobook and just it was such a dream of mine to have three narrators. I mean, that's just a writer's dream come true. It really was. They do an amazing job. Like I just love it. I mean, it's such a treat to listen to. For years I had no idea how to structure this novel. And I do mean years. I, I wrote another book. I wrote two books putting off trying to figure out how to structure the novel. I wrote really about a hundred stories. <laughs> Whenever I say that, people are like, "Really?" I'm like, no, I really did. Like, that's how long I put it off because I had no idea how to structure it. Um, when I finally did figure it out, it's because I watched TV instead of writing and I watched a lot of Mozart in the Jungle and it's an Amazon show about music, about an orchestra, gossip and drama and then the symphony. And then so I started reading about um, how to go about writing music. I know nothing about writing music, but so I decided to write it like a fugue. Once I saw that a fugue, is a piece of music that can be written with three distinct voices. Um, and I had three characters. So I started to think of them as three ribbons and one ribbon slips out. And so we have Eamon, Evangeline, and Dalton. They're all individuals, but at times they do speak alike the same way that people or friends and family members tend to speak alike and use the same slang. 
Eamon is the quote unquote, like leader of the group. Really. He's kind of the heart of the group. He's the reason that Dalton and Evangeline know each other. But then I have Dalton. He's like the artist's heart. He's a pianist. And Evangeline is the only woman. And she, and she begins and ends our story. And so the three characters have relationships with one another separately. And they also have a big group relationship. Dalton and Eamon have known each other their entire lives. Their moms are best friends when they were pregnant. And Eamon and Evangeline are married. And now Dalton and Evangeline are left alone without Eamon, but they're also together. The way I envisioned it in my mind made a lot of sense to me to section them off and write in alternating voices. Originally, I was just going to write in Evangeline's voice, but it was too claustrophobic and I wanted to get get to know the boys as well. I worked really hard on making sure that they could sound as different as possible. They have totally different things going on in their lives, but also a lot of the things they say um, are the same and they echo each other because in a fugue, you know, the people singing the voices and, and the music, it would, there would be harmony, but each character would have their solo or, you know, so to say, but then there would be parts, um, so to put it that way, but, but there would be times when they come together and and sing together. So if, you know, if I hadn't written it as a fugue, I wouldn't have been able to write it. It would just be sitting on my computer. I think that that approach, is that mentioned in the blurb that it modeled after a fugue or did I read that somewhere else? Maybe. I, it was in one of them and it's also written at the very, at the beginning. Okay, that's right. That's yeah, right. yeah. The front okay. matter mentions it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I, when I read that, that was really intriguing to me. And then I wasn't obviously on the first page. You have no clue what that means as a reader. Um, but as the story progressed, I loved how, as you said, like it folded in on itself and kind of like wove together and how their relationships overlapped. And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed the most about the book was seeing. And I don't know how you decided what chapter went where, but I felt like information was revealed at exactly the right time that it needed to be revealed. And it just added a whole other layer to the story that I think it would have been missing otherwise, like or just like a first person narrative or third person narrative on its own would have. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's a high compliment. It's a grueling task for me <laughs> to, to know oh, where sure. to begin. Yeah. To know where to begin and end chapters, to know when to do things, the pacing. It's probably the hardest thing about writing books for me, probably the hardest thing about writing a book for me. So, um, this book took me so long to write, um, that I feel 100% comfortable that I got the pacing right. And I, I with what I wanted to do, now someone could sit there and be like, I hated it. I mean, that's what one star. It sucked. Ugh. You know, like, <laughs> no, actually there's a review and the, the, the title of it's just UGH. Ugh. That's so, I mean, so like, sad. <laughs> so I mean, like you, you, as a writer, you're used to it. It's fine. It's not for everyone. It's fine. But I did what I was trying to do. And so what yeah. I, what, you know, when I set out to finish this book, when I sent it to my agent, terrified me. I'd never shown the whole thing to anyone. When we're sending it out on submission, when someone chooses to buy it, when it's published and now people all over the world can have it on their Kindles and have it on their nightstands and paper and hardback and paperback soon. It's, it's done. I've written it. I have to feel okay with what I've done. I have to feel like I've written the best book I can possibly, you know, I possibly can, you know, at that second, which is what I've done. So there's nothing anyone can say. There's no, ugh, 
big enough for me to not feel like I have succeeded. And so that's, you know, that's great for me because that's a lot of protection for my heart. I can get a million bad reviews. No one can convince me it's a bad book. They just can't. I did what I wanted to do. I succeeded at that. But the pacing and figuring out who's going to talk when and who's going to tell what when is a grueling task for me. Like it takes so <laughs> long for me to do. So this is me telling you, thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> it does, that part does not come easily for me. So much about writing comes really easily for me. That does not. So thank you. <laughs> well, I would never have known if you hadn't told me. Okay. Did we ask you about if you wrote the characters' perspectives separately? Yeah, I did write them all separately. I actually have three separate binders for each of the characters, and I wrote all their parts separately. I did. Yeah, I had to. That's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. (laughs) We're just, like, taking notes here. We're organizers, so, like, that makes me really excited. Yes. Um, That's really cool, (laughs) because I wondered how you kept everyone straight as you were writing it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that was the that, that that's the way that that's the only way I could do it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I'm sure every writer has a different different way of doing it, but that was the only way I could do it to to keep it straight. But like I said, a lot of times they say the same things, but I did that on purpose so they could echo one another. Um, and 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 a lot of points they're feeling the same way. I mean, you know, especially as. Evangeline and, and Dalton are dealing with their grief after losing the person in the world they love the most. They 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 would feel the same way. And so there's a, actually a part where Evangeline's remarking in her inner thoughts that grief is horrifyingly um, generic and horrifyingly personal because it is very personal. If you lose the person to you, their relationship to you, that's very personal. But there's also this umbrella of grief that everyone has felt. You, you know, there are some things that are the that are the same about it and, and different too. So, you know, I was trying to explore that within the three characters. You know, I was trying to do that. I'm trying to let the reader slip in there and be in their world. Yeah. And I found that you reflected the person's grief so well. And I think with grief, oftentimes it's the small things that hurt the most, like mm-hmm. preparing morning coffee and only getting out one coffee cup instead of two right, right. or different mm-hmm. things. And I felt like you just portrayed it in such a realistic way. Sometimes I read books about grief and they're just so over the top. And I'm like, well, I appreciate your perspective, but that's not how I per se experience grief. And so I really... Sure, sure appreciated Evangeline and there's a scene at the very end of the book I won't give spoilers for our listeners but where um, Dalton and Evie are trying to work through their grief together we know at the beginning they kiss so that's that's not a spoiler but Mm -hmm. that they both end up crying and I started crying because I almost could like feel that like the mixed emotions of love and grief at the same time and how they can exist almost in the same space. Right, right. And I wondered how you work through writing their grief in such a vivid way throughout the book that felt so realistic and it wasn't over the top or, or anything dramatic, but it was just like everyday kind of grief. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's a high compliment again. So I really do appreciate it. I, you know, the little things, the stuff that you were talking about, you know, I, since before when I was talking about the things that are really hard for me in writing, something that's very easy for me in writing is creating intimacy. I would say it's probably my number one thing that I can do well off the bat. And that's what I 
love to write. I love to write intimacy between friends, between family, teeny tiny things like that. And so with this book, what I've done is I've forced them to stay together. They can't run away. The baby's not there to distract them. They're in the house together alone and they're snowed in. They're not going anywhere for a little bit. So I'm having them together deal with their grief. And then we're also hearing the way they dealt with their grief separately. And even when they're in the house snowed in, there's times when Dalton's like, I got to go to the garage for a minute. I've got to, you know, I need some fresh air. Those little things is what I, what I was trying to do. So I mentioned that, you know, Eamon's running shoes had been out and some of his stuff had been around and one day it was just gone. And I was thinking about that. And this was actually about an animal, not a person, but my very first puppy, we only had her for a month. She died. Um, she had gotten into some poison in my neighbor's yard. It's a horrifying story, but, mm-hmm. but, but I do remember the sweetest thing my older brother did for my mom. And I'm going to try not to cry because she was a precious angel, but, but was that I remember he took her little dog bed and the food and he just kind of put it away so my mom wouldn't see it. And so Mm -hmm. it was a tiny little thing like, okay, we're dealing with some, we're grieving, you know, a little puppy, but it's too heartbreaking to see her little bed right now. And so it's little stuff like that. Like you were saying, I think of um, Joni Mitchell too, when she talks about a man being gone and she's like, the bed's too big, the frying pan's too wide. It's like those little things like, Oh, this bed is really big without you in it. Or it's weird with you not being here in the morning. You know, I I miss these little things like that. It creates intimacy. It creates this, you know, a realness. That's why I said it's such a compliment for you to say it. I hope it's creating a realness to grief, teeny tiny things like that. A certain, you know, just a certain, you know, the weather or, oh, the snow, you know, cause Eamon really loves snowstorms. So it's like, oh, this, even the snow, this weather reminds me of him, those things like that. I, you know, I, and grief can be over the top, you know, it can, I, you know, so I get it. But, um, I, I thought so often of my favorite theater teacher, I went to youth performing arts high school and, and I remember her telling us that when you're really, really upset with some, about something, your voice can get quiet sometimes because a lot of times in acting class, like if you're really, really angry or sad, like your first instinct is to yell it or scream it. But she was like, think about when you're really broken or ashamed or the saddest, loneliest, darkest place you've been. You don't even have the energy to, to be loud or big about it. It really is small. Um, your act, your reaction to it may be small when the depth of it is seems to be endless. And so I was trying to do that in my writing. She's nine months pregnant when her husband is killed. A huge, huge moment in her life forever, you know. And so I try to take that huge moment and break it down into smaller moments, the quiet of the snowstorm and the what now part of it is what interests me. And since I was ruining her perfect life, <laughs> I wanted to put her in the most comforting situation I could with someone that she loves and trusts, someone who loves and trusts her and takes care of her. So I tried the best I could to give her that cushion because I knew that everything was going to be terrible for a little bit. <laughs> That's so beautiful. And I think, you know, one of the lines that stood that still has stayed with me and I'm not going to paraphrase it properly, but where Evangeline says that the birth of her son, which is supposed to be this happy thing actually like marks out the time that Eamon has been gone. And like, that was, I felt like that perfectly encapsulated the situation she was in where she has like these two huge feelings at the same time that she has to hold intention somehow, which as we've talked about, we don't often 
you know, we don't often give people space to have two emotions at the same time. Right. Oh, yeah. Especially now. It's like, you know, feelings are complicated. I don't know. I'll be like, I'm kind of upset about this. But on the other hand, it's kind of I mean, I think that's so human. But and I think we all feel those emotions at the same time. But then there's this performative aspect of social media where you have to take a position. And if you don't, well, you know, if you don't do virtue signaling, you know, if you don't, well, then people might think. And I feel that way about like, you know, whenever the horrors of a school shooting, if you don't say you're against school shootings, I mean, do people really believe that you would be pro school shooting? It's like, I really don't, I don't do that kind of virtue signaling on social media. I don't feel the need to. I'm also 40, like I'm a 40 year old woman. So I don't feel the same pressures that maybe a younger person would. But I think about that often because, you know, because especially people who, when they see what's going on in Whiskey and Ribbons, they're like, oh, well, they don't, you know, they instantly don't like it because how's Evangeline jumping on Dalton when she's grieving her husband? I'm like, well, I, I made it six months out because she knows she didn't imagine this. He's not coming back. But also, it's a short amount of time I realize that. But also, like in what world is she not still grieving her husband because she's seeking comfort for a night? Like, I mean, I just want to be like, give her a break. Like she's had kind of a rough time. Like we can have a bad day at work and be like, Oh, I need a glass of wine. Well, Evangeline's had a really bad six months and she needs a whiskey and she needs to just get some boy right now. She needs a break. And so it's like, I think about that, you know, what you said, and you know, it, it, it is true. Like there are so many different, emotions that are going on, we all contain multitudes. And, and once, you know, what I've been saying this whole time is, you know, I feel like we can relax about that and not expect people to act a certain way. Sometimes, especially with grief, it comes up, people are expected to, you know, to behave a certain way and we can be really hard on people. But in general, I think that people are super hard on fictional characters and how they should act all the time. We're yes. even harder on them than they are in real life. Like you can know people who are super like forgiving and chill in real life, but then if a character in a book does one thing, like if they like a show or an actor or they eat a certain kind of cereal, they'll just be like, I hated that book. Like I'll be like, Whoa. <laughs> So true. So I, I don't know, man. It's wild out there. <laughs> <laughs> shifting gears just a little bit um we'd obviously love to talk more about your book but i think if we talked more we'd have to give away spoilers and we don't <laughs> into that. but we always like to have guests on our podcast tell us about some of their favorite women writers or women writers that they've been reading recently that they would like to recommend to our listeners i would say crystal wilkinson who her latest book is birds of opulence she's a kentucky writer love her love her so much I'll also say, you know, everyone's going to be reading Tiari Jones, you know, from the <laughs> to see what, you know, to see what she does next. Um, she, she's just been so sweet to me through this prize. She wrote me early on in my book tour and was like, how's it going? And that was really sweet. Just really sweet for, you know, someone like her as busy as she is to reach out and, and just say hi and to check in on me. She's an amazing person in Jen. And so is Crystal. Crystal has been so sweet to me. Um, too. So they've been really, really great. I also really love Cora Chista-Cockpoor, who wrote um, Sick, a memoir about her Lyme disease and her illness, chronic illnesses she's been dealing mm-hmm. with. I'll also say Roxane Gay. I'm really stoked about her forthcoming YA novel. I read everything she writes. I was fortunate enough to meet her years and years ago. And she has been just so important to my writing life in terms of modeling 
sort of some of the same things she does. I, I read a lot about where she had been published and sort of followed her around for a little bit um, to see what she was doing to check it out. Um, she is a, a rocket now, but I was fortunate enough to meet her early on. And um, I also really like um, Tiana Clark, who writes poetry, R.O. Kwan, who wrote The Incendiaries. And I've recently started watching Killing Eve. And the woman who I was thinking about her because she writes some of the episodes and that's not really a a book, but her name is um, Phoebe Waller Bridge. And I love her vision and the way she writes women. Wow. That's that's a stellar list there. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, where do you start? (laughs) Right. Right. I've heard amazing things about Killing Eve and Birds of Opulence, but I haven't gotten to either of them yet, sadly. Yeah. Killing Eve is like stunning. And it's complicated, you know, we, you know, of course we don't have the time, but it's complicated women. It's, you know, quote unquote, unlikable women. It's, it's complicated women who are, you know, who are likable one minute and the next minute you're like, what is she doing? Um, But it's real, real women, messy women. And I I mean, I love it. I crave it. Anything like that I'm drawn to and I want to eat it up. Oh my goodness. Well, it's definitely on my list. So a little birdie told me, i.e. the internet, uh, (laughs) that you also are working on some new books because you got a book deal recently. Uh, Would you tell our listeners a little bit about that and what's coming up for you? Yeah, I recently sold my next two books to Grand Central Publishing. And one of them is a collection of short stories called So We Can Glow. It's a lot of stories in there. And they're all centered around wild women, complicated women, a quote unquote, unlikable women, femininity and relationships. And, uh, I mean, I just, some of those stories I, I wrote probably back in 2012. I mean, it's a dream come true to have a short story collection published by a press like that. So yeah, I'm really stoked about that. And then also a novel called this close to okay. And it is a book about a therapist who stops a man from choosing suicide on a bridge and she brings him home with her um, and it's set mm. over a rainy Halloween weekend. Oh, <laughs> both of those sound amazing. And congratulations. Yes. That's such a Thank big you. deal with Grand Central. Yeah, it's a it's a huge deal. It's still kind of sinking in. I'm excited <laughs> about it. My brain is still kind of like, what? <laughs> <laughs> totally understandable. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about Whiskey and Ribbons. We loved your book and loved getting to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Lisa was such a joy to talk to. Yes, she was just so warm and kind, gracious to talk with us about her book. And I loved hearing some of the behind the scenes about where the book came from. And I loved hearing, too, about her writing process through all of this. Anytime you write a book from three perspectives, I always wonder how on earth did they make this beautiful, magical masterpiece? And so it was cool to hear about that process as well. One thing, too, that I didn't even think about until she mentioned it is that it's not a traditional love story in the sense of it's like girl pining over guy but you actually get two male perspectives and in most romance stories you only get the female perspective you know that's true and I'm not a huge fan of love triangles I I think I might be scarred by some YA fantasy novels that I read several years ago but this one was beautiful and I really enjoyed it because it was a genuinely complex story of three different characters and I love how she retold bits from the different characters perspectives and 
you know, I think she's definitely right. She's very good at creating intimacy yes. between characters. And human. It's a very human book. That's like the one word. It's like it's very human. I think I think that's a good way to end it. So besides telling everyone to go get a copy for themselves. Yes. <laughs> so thanks so much again to Lisa Cross Smith for talking to us about her book, Whiskey and Ribbons. It is out right now from Hub City Press. Go get a copy. Buy it for all your friends and family for Christmas. It is not too early to start shopping for Christmas, so go do it now. Um, you can find out more about her on her website, lisacrosssmith.com, and that's L-E-E-S-A. She's also on Twitter and Instagram, at lisacrosssmith, so be sure to follow her there so you can keep tabs on her new books that will be coming out in the future. And as for us, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at KD Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. You can also find us at readingwomenpodcast.com where we have all kinds of things. Too much to say, so just go check it out. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.